Hello and welcome to the Women in Leadership podcast. I'm Angie Mazzetti. No one's a mind reader. I think that's the biggest thing you have to understand. And even I have to remind myself that even now where I am, that nobody else knows what's going on in your head in terms of what you want. So if you can't articulate what you want, nobody else can help you achieve that. Great advice there for life and particularly for career-minded women from Emer Caslin, who's the Acting General Manager of the pharmaceuticals business for GSK in Ireland. According to Emer, the world of business is adapting to working with women during and after maternity leave, which isn't that big of a chunk to take out of a career lifespan when you think about it. You know, I look back over my 23 years in the business, I've had three maternity leaves, what, two years in total out of the business. But out of 23 years, it's, it's a blip. It's really is a blip. I mean, you know, I was promoted to our leadership team when I was five months pregnant. One point she stresses is the need to take risks and to avail of opportunities when they come your way. People have to want those opportunities. So, and sometimes there's risk involved. There's, you know, uncertainty in terms of well, what lead, what will this lead to? But I think if you're willing to take a chance, sometimes you know, wonderful things can happen. And I've been really fortunate that that has happened to me. Emer has lots of other wisdom to share about going digital when communicating with healthcare professionals. And she's also passionate about working with teams and particularly discovering how best to navigate working with teams composed of people from other business cultures and traditions. I am a big believer that actually strong, high-performing teams can achieve so much than any one or two individuals. That's all to come, together with her five pearls of wisdom. But I began by asking Emer what exactly does her company, GSK, do? So GSK is a global healthcare company who uh, manufactures, researches medicines and vaccines. Um, so we have an operation here in Ireland. We have over 1,200 uh, employees based across our manufacturing sites. So we have manufacturing sites in Cork, Dungarvan and Sligo. And then we have commercial businesses here in Dublin. And I work in the, the commercial side of the pharmaceutical business. Very good. Um, would you make any sort of well-known stuff that people would know? We do. So on our consumer side of the business, we have lots of brands, I suppose, that we know really well. So Panadol uh, is a global brand and actually manufactured practically for the world down in Dungarvan. So that's one of the key sites for our consumer healthcare business. And um, we also have all of our um, oral healthcare business. So Aquafresh, uh, Sensodynes, they're huge brands, I suppose, in the consumer world. And then in pharmaceuticals, we have a lot of medicines that I suppose are used um, a lot by patients. So we have a whole range of antibiotics. So Augmentin is a old uh, antibiotic but really well known and then we have a huge range of inhalers that are used in respiratory medicine for asthma and COPD that patients would know very well the blue and the blue inhaler right through to the purple inhaler and right through to some of our more newer medicines that we now have. Excellent so it's an exciting job is it? It is it's a very varied job but it is really exciting I think that's one of the things that I've always been really lucky that I've really enjoyed what I've done since I've been in the company. Tell me about your, your early life and your career. Where were you born? Where did you grow up yeah, in your so, education? So I um, was born in Longford, so I'm from the Midlands, and um, I am one of eight children, so we had a very busy household. Uh, There's uh, five girls and three boys, and um, I think like any typical Irish family, uh, we were basically uh, grew up with each other, I suppose. We kind of brought each other up. But I was the third youngest. Uh, my parents both had uh, a business. We had a restaurant, a family restaurant. So my mum worked really hard, I think, bringing up eight children plus having a full-time job in that restaurant. 
But I think that actually gave me a really strong work ethic. And that's something that we were always involved in our family business right from a very young age. So washing dishes was a core part of what we did as growing up as children. So I went to school. Great role model in your mother. Yeah, no, fabulous. She, I mean, I look back now when I think about it, and um, she was a phenomenal. Like she is a phenomenal woman, but really back in the sixties, working very long hours uh, in our restaurant, um, working really hard, and still being able to have eight children and getting back into work nearly practically immediately. But then using the supports around her, so using family and friends around her to help rear us, I suppose, really. and we all loved it because we were all so together, I suppose, as a family, really. So it was it was a great upbringing, really. I can't complain. And um, would have went to the great, great resource in your family as well. Oh yeah, I mean we get on fantastically well. There's a big joke in our family how uh, five of us live in Dublin now, and three of us live within a five minute walk of each other, which is you know considering we're not from Dublin, it's quite unusual. But um, but no, so we, we do draw on each other's, I suppose, for support. Um, and having having four sisters is fantastic and while we do fight we don't not really not a lot but we really are there to support each other and have always been I suppose which is a, a huge is a huge benefit I think growing up with that support probably not fighting but challenging each other challenging each other you know who's to, who took my top and that kind of fun stuff but um, but no so it was a great it was a great childhood went to the local school um, really enjoyed that uh, local national school was local it? national and secondary school in Longford um, nothing too special there and then when it came to going to university I didn't really want to go to Dublin, even though all my family kind of before that had gone to Dublin. Um, and that was something that was really important to my parents was to get an education, to get a really good education. I think every parent of that generation, it was all about once you have a bit of paper, then you can decide what you want to do. So for the girls as much as for the boys in the family, it was all about getting a really good education so that it would set you up for life. And uh, I decided I want to go to college in Galway. And so I did a BCom in Galway. And... Um, Galway is great fun. had a great had a great three years in college there. Uh, studied BCom, specialised in marketing, and then I came to Dublin to do a, a postgrad. So, tell me really, about your postgrad. What did you hmm. do? So I did um, a marketing postgrad in Michael Smurfish um, Business School. And that was just a really practical postgrad where you were working with different companies on different assignments. So it was it was very much an introduction to the workforce. So you went in working on marketing projects for companies and immediately you had to be effective. You had to be able to relate to people in a work environment. You had to be professional and you had to be able to work with other people. And I think that really set me up for getting the job, the first job, which was my very first job in GSK, basically. So you've been a career GSK girl. I have been. So we were Smithline Beecham, first of all, SB, and then through various different takeovers, it's GSK. But yes, yeah, so I've been with the company as a graduate, essentially. So um, I left college and this is my first real job out of, out of college. So they must have made it a nice place to work, have they? Um, it's been absolutely, I would say, fantastic. There are so many opportunities for people if people want to to take those opportunities. So one of the things that I'm a big believer in is that people have to want those opportunities. So, and sometimes there's risk involved, there's you know uncertainty in terms of, well, what will, lead to, what will this lead to? But I think if you're willing to take a chance, sometimes you know wonderful things can happen. And I've been really fortunate that that has happened to me. Um, people took chances on me, I took chances on the company, and uh, kind of 23 years later, um, I have the current position that I do. Well done. Uh, I think sometimes people expect opportunities to come to them. Do you have to have your eyes open and your ears open when there's 
when there's opportunity there and kind of put up your hand and say, can I have this, please? Yeah, no one's a mind reader. I think that's the biggest thing you have to understand. And even I have to remind myself that even now where I am, that nobody else knows what's going on in your head in terms of what you want. So if you can't articulate what you want, nobody else can help you achieve that. I think the hardest part can sometimes be articulating what you want because maybe there's a fear of failure, maybe there's a fear of not being good enough, maybe there's a fear of, oh, well, they'll just laugh at me. But if you don't articulate it, you will never be able to start making the right moves towards getting or achieving your ambition. So I think once, I think at times I was brave enough to put my hand up to say, well, actually, I'd really like to do that. What I actually found was that there was people very supportive within the business to help me along that path. And... um, sometimes yeah you get knocked back but that's all part of life you know you have to learn from rejection you have to learn from failure Uh, it makes you stronger Uh, it makes you recognize well actually that's how the real world works you don't get everything landed you know on a plate to you um were you surprised that people were helpful to you i think initially when i look back so we would have had a um a general manager who was from the u.s who took a real interest when I said I wanted to uh, work abroad in one of our both country roles. And he would have sat with me and worked on my CV. Now, to think that a general manager would do that to someone who was, at the time, relatively junior in his organisation, I was really surprised. But I think that was his way of giving something back, you know, to someone in his team. You know, it was a good reflection on him if someone of his team in a small market got a job above country. and actually, that really stood to me because he had come from the US where he was really slick on some of this stuff. And um, there's definitely things that, you know, he would have shared with me, some insights, some examples that he would have shared with me that have really, you know, stayed with me, I suppose. Um, and, uh, yeah, I kind of look back and think, why wouldn't he have helped? You know, like, what was what was the worst thing that was going to happen? So, so I think most people are willing to help. You just have to ask for their help. Yeah, sometimes that can be the hardest thing asking yeah, for it. Absolutely. And how about um, mentoring? Did you get mentoring from other people as well as himself? So it's kind of interesting because a load of people will say this, that they may not recognise it at the time as mentoring, but when they think back, they will say, well, actually, that was mentoring or that was coaching. And if I think back, I have had some really good managers who have just taken a little bit of time with me and who've helped maybe build my confidence in certain areas where maybe I didn't think I could do something or I, I lacked a bit of confidence. And I think what they did now when I reflect back is what they were doing was mentoring, was coaching, um, and maybe pushing me to do things that was outside of my comfort zone, but actually was to make the point that actually was totally within my capability. So for sure, I've had a number of managers and a number of general managers here in the business who've done that for me. And without their support, you know, I probably wouldn't have grown in the same way that I have, actually. Have you worked abroad for GSK? So I moved to France back in 2014. So we were setting up a new team. It was to kind of create European campaigns uh, for our key brands in respiratory. And instead of 44 countries doing that job, we just have one team doing that job. And uh, I applied for the job. Uh, kind of notionally thinking well maybe I'll get it and I had just been married a couple of months at that stage and my husband was like just go for it and see what happens we'll cross that bridge when, when we come to it if you get the job and I got the job and my husband was really supportive he went and he works for another multinational and he went and got a leave of absence for a year and he came to Paris with me and we both went to Paris and 
from a professional and a personal um, experience, it was fantastic. Now, it was supposed to be for three years and there was no guarantee that what I would come back to in Dublin, there was no guarantee there would be a job when I came back to Dublin. But again, if you're always waiting for the certainty, you're going to miss out on so much opportunity. So we just said, look, we'll see what happens. And then a year and a half into it, I got uh, pregnant and uh, my old boss in Dublin rang me up and said that they'd lost two people. Would I come back? And I said, well, I'm actually expecting and he just said, well, when are you due? And he said, oh, well, that gives us three months when you come back to sort things out. So he was fabulous. He just said, no, that's fine. There's loads of time, loads of time. So I came back to Dublin, had three months to kind of get things going in the right path. And um, I went off my maternity leave and then came back. But, you know, that was just great. Him being supportive, number one, uh, you know. And number two, I suppose, how everything just kind of collided just at the right time. So brought me back to, to Ireland to have my first child um, and also then to set me back up in Dublin with a career uh, in the company. I can't help thinking, but God, how things have changed. I know, I know. <laughs> and you know, that they would actually think that way and, you know, value you so much is fantastic. And well, a very supportive husband, wow. Yeah, well, that's so funny because my husband at the time, and if he listens to this, he'll smile because um, everyone in Ireland used to say, wow, that's fantastic. You're getting a year off and you're going to Paris, you're going to France. And he met one person in Paris uh, who said to him, my gosh, you've put your career on hold for a year for your wife. And this is the first time that anyone had ever said that to him. And he just kind of looked at them and just couldn't fathom where they were coming from to actually even think that because the thought had never struck him that that was the case. So thankfully, I suppose we both have the same, I suppose, perspective on life that, you know, we're there to support each other. Our careers are, are as important and it's not kind of one at the, from the, at the sake of another person. So, um, no, so it's been Great fantastic. foundation for a relationship yeah. as well, isn't no, it? No, absolutely. Yeah. Did he absolutely. get work as well? So he didn't want, he didn't work during that year. So he learned French. We could test his French now, it might be too good, but but he travelled back. I think he was Ryanair's best customer during that year. He travelled back to, uh, to Ireland to spend time with his family during the off-peak when I would have been travelling. And uh, he just really enjoyed, as we joke, it was his maternity leave uh, that he had that time off. He's never had that time off again. He's still with the same company, and that's 23 years since he joined that company as well. So, um, yeah, so no, it worked out well. Just going back to your schooling and mm. your growing up, did you have people who really made an impact on you and your, your leadership ambitions when you were younger in school or in university? Probably not so much in school. I think it goes back to my parents, actually. I think both my parents were really strong role models. I think um, my mother, in terms of, she was a very strong, silent kind of individual in that she just really got on with things. Uh, she did a huge amount of work, both in the home and uh, in our restaurant, managing all that, um, and just gave us really strong values around work ethic. And then my father was a bit opposite. He was very gregarious character. He was full of life. He was uh, used humour hugely in terms of everything he did. Um, but he was really driven to achieve. So he was very involved in our local uh, GA club. He set it up. He was really instrumental in terms of various different development stages they went through. He worked with them as various different capacities right up into his 80s, you know. And um, I think both of them, you know, while they were quite opposites, both of them, I think, were very much around, you know, you got to go for what you want. And, you know, but that family is really important or your values are really important. Um, and I think that's probably really who I look to for those kind of leadership qualities in different ways, kind of 
my father for that gregarious more outwardly kind of leadership kind of style but my mother for that really inner strength I think and the capacity to get things done I suppose she's a role model for showing you that you can be a good mother and Mm. work at the same time absolutely because I don't really think of her not been around you know I never really thought when I was younger we'd go home in the evening time after school and she wouldn't have been there until maybe six o'clock or seven o'clock but the thought never struck us of being that being odd or different or you know it just was the way it was. Um, um, I've heard you quoted as saying you're a great believer in the power of teams. Uh, how did that come about? Is it the ideal style of leadership as opposed to, you know, the, the male leading, the alpha male leading from the front? Mm. What's your thinking, your thoughts behind yeah. teams? So probably because I come from a large family, I'm used to numbers, I suppose. And, and really, I've always been used to groups whether it be at home, whether it be in school, kind of really seeing what the power of the group can do. And even from a work perspective, you know, when teams are faced with some very adverse kind of situations, I've really seen that while you can have some star individuals, it's actually when everyone really comes together, gets really aligned behind something that has to be achieved, that I've really seen the most positive results come through. So I am a big believer that actually strong high performing teams can achieve so much than any one or two individuals you know so look at i'm not a big soccer fan my kids love soccer but you know if we only have to look at the likes of dundalk or you know the success they've had they don't have any superstars kind of players on their team but yet they've done a fairly you know fairly phenomenal thing in terms of their achievements and i kind of think that's the way that teams can be we can have this you know it's not just one plus one it's two you can have a much bigger impact there's going to be times where you have to lead from the front. So when you have times significant change or if you have something that people can't necessarily see, a vision that people can't necessarily see, then then you have to lead from the front because you have to show people the way. You have to show people why this is the right thing to do. Um, and I think uh, that's when you need to really adopt that leadership from the front. What do you think about diversity on, on teams? I'm not just talking about male, female, mm. but, you know, getting quiet people, loud people, you know, arty people, mm. uh, you know, numbers people, you know, yeah. how important is a diversity in a team? So, so that's really interesting. Um, so I think it is really important. And we just did an exercise here in our leadership team here in the business where we actually looked at our strengths as a team. And we're going to roll this out to the wider teams over the next coming months. But what we found actually was that we have a real mix of people within our team. And we can see why maybe two people spark off each other because actually their strengths, one is all about creativity and the other person's all about the detail. So clearly when those two people kind of go head to head, you know, there's sparks that fly. But actually that's the beauty in actually having those people on the team because if you're all about creativity, nothing would get done. And if you're all about the process, you'd have no new ideas coming through. So you absolutely need that. And similarly then, you know, when you have people, I'm a big believer that it's not all about being the loudest but I think there's a time for all those kind of personality traits in a team because you have the thinkers you know the processors but then you have the doers and you need all those people together really to get the whole holistic view of what is you're trying to achieve. What was the ethic like in France you know what was the organizational structure in, like in France was it any different to here like was it different working with French teams as different to working in Irish teams? Yeah so my team was um, a European team because we had people from uh, Netherlands, from Finland, from the UK, from Australia. 
So I think I was actually quite lucky. We also had French. I, we, I think I was really lucky because there was a lovely blend of cultures. So we actually had to do a bit of a, a cultural exchange at the start to really establish ways of working because there would be a particular style, perhaps in, in France, that actually, when you look from an English or an Irish perspective, you think, well, that's very hierarchical. Why are you doing that for? You know, it's, we can't just go and talk to the person. And the French might go, oh, no, 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 no. You need to go to the manager and all that sort of thing. So we had to have a whole ways of working kind of session to sort of set out, well, actually, how do we want to work? And once we had got past that, it, it was really productive. But um, but it was, a, it was a real eye-opener, I suppose, from a cultural point of view to see how just styles are different in different countries and some of the stereotypes that we hear about are can be true you know so you know when I'd see two Italians having what would look to be a big bust up in actual fact they're just having a really good discussion and you think how can those people are they still talking to each other afterwards and they'd, they'd all be smiles and go oh no no that was just a, a good heated debate and nothing of it so and you, you'd kind of have to you know kind of go okay that's just the way Italians might do that. It's or, a bit more animated. And, and they're yeah. huge, it's huge generalisations, I appreciate that. But actually, sometimes you needed to go through the different cultures to understand that. And particularly when the role I had in France was working across 24 markets and, and working with all these different cultures, it was to understand the different nuances so that you could build a better relationship with the individuals um, and then you could get, actually get the job done. I suppose it would help your understanding of the markets in those various different absolutely. countries as yeah, well. Yeah, no, absolutely. And one of the big things that we did was spend some time in the countries, attending some of the team meetings, local team meetings, going to research sessions with the, the healthcare professionals in that country. Because while we like to think that we're all very different, we're not really. We're all, most of the European countries are quite similar. But there will be a few nuances that kind of set different countries apart and it's, it's important to know what they are and to be cognizant of them I suppose. Did you bring any of your learnings from Europe or from France back to Ireland? So definitely definitely the piece around ways of working and you know not assuming this is the way it's always been done so we're just going to do it this way so we would I would always start off with new teams about establishing how do we want to work together and setting out expectations so this is the way I work how do you work and do we see any areas that we could run into trouble? So if I'm someone who likes lots of detail and somebody is someone who doesn't like much detail, I think we're going to run into problems here. So how do we think we're going to avoid this? And setting some ground rules then as, you know, working either with individuals or teams around that. So that's something that's worked really well, I think, for me over the last couple of years. One of the things I was reading about you was that um, you're big into, you know, bringing about a more digitised way of mm. working. What does that actually mean in practice? So what does that mean? So it means dragging the pharmaceutical industry and GSK, I suppose, into the 21st century. So, look, we all use lots of different digital channels personally in our personal lives, whether it be to book flights, whether it be to check the time opening hours of stores, whether it be to research the latest Fitbit and what, what, what it offers. And really, when we look at uh, in, in the pharmaceutical industry, we're very reluctant or we have been quite reluctant to go there because we're a highly regulated industry. We can share information to members of the public. It can only be to healthcare professionals. So I think we have probably have been very cautious of moving into that space. 
but healthcare professionals have the same needs as we all do. So they're looking for information about medicines that they prescribe in a way that they can get it easily at a time that suits them, whether that be early in the morning, before their clinic starts, before their practice starts, or maybe at the very end of the day. And just saying that they can only see somebody from GSK during nine to five is really, I suppose, very old school. Um, you did some research work on that. Did you do that yourself? And were you surprised uh, at their reluctance to engage in digital platforms? So, so we did. We commissioned that research. And so I don't think we were really surprised because, again, I think people are just very cautious in terms of when it comes to medicines and, you know, it's it's a serious business. You know, uh, medical professionals do not want to get it wrong. Their whole ethos is to do no harm. Um, so we weren't surprised. What we are starting to see, though, is that, that it is a generational pull, that as more people have grown up with, you know, connectivity, whether it be to the internet, social media, etc., there is that expectation that you can get that information. I mean... If any of us just think about when we go to look something up and you don't find a company that has the website, you're immediately thinking, well, what's wrong with them? You, you know, so so I think there is this expectation that you will find a certain amount of information online. Now, I don't think it will ever replace the face-to-face because we're, we're human beings at the end of the day. And I think when it comes to really important decisions, we like to talk to somebody, we like to thrash out our decisions, the pros and cons of various different things. So we definitely see that there is always going to be a role for the face-to-face, but probably um, that interaction really has to add value. So people are becoming so time pressured. If a medical professional is going to give up five, 10, 20 minutes of their time, we have to make sure that those face-to-face interactions can really make a difference. So our our employees have to be um, really knowledgeable on our medicines. And um, so we have to really know everything that there is to know about our medicines and be able to share that with medical professionals so that then they can make the best decision and the most informed decision about what they need to do next with patients. We actually started about, well, how could we change that? And so we, uh, I suppose, revolutionized the website that we would have had there. And we uh, brought the background system, I suppose, into the 21st century. And then we started to generate some content. Now, it's nowhere near where, say, a consumer site would be. But we're really making progress so that we can deliver information that is accurate, that's credible, uh, that's available to healthcare professionals um, at a time they want it. Um, and then also through various different mediums. So the website is one, but we also offer webinars where they can hear from our medical colleagues so that they can hear about whether it's developments in the latest medicines or the treatment pathways in the conditions or the disease areas that we uh, operate in. And then we also have, um, they can sign up for emails to learn more about information about our medicines or educational offerings. So we're at the start of the journey, but for us, it's felt like a huge leap to get us this far. So we need to do a lot more, but I think we're well and truly on the way. One of the things I was delighted to read about is that your company's been hugely involved with HIV. Yes. Um, have you been involved in that or what does, so, what does yeah, the company so do? So it's one of our, um, it's one of the disease areas that we absolutely have medicines for. So, um, no, it's a fantastic um, good news story, I suppose, what GSK has done. Uh, and essentially it's about making uh, get patients being able to get access to these medicines um, 
uh, at an affordable rate and so therefore the philosophy that our former CEO who's just uh, left the company at the start of this year um, had was that you know the countries who can pay for medicines should really pay for medicines because that subsidizes the countries who just cannot afford to for me- can't afford medicines so and that's really the philosophy that is very much embedded into our culture so with HIV, it's just fantastic that we have a program where countries can get access to medicines. We have uh, also, you know, the, the clinical files to those drugs are available so that other companies can make medicines and make them available in those countries as well. And it's just something that I suppose it makes you feel really good about the company and really good about what we do, you know, because pharmaceutical companies don't always have a good name. I was thinking that, yeah. <laughs> You know, when you, when you, I mean, I was reading that as well, you know, about the, the career or the uh, the values of respect, transparency, integrity and patient focus. Um, it sounds like really nice stuff, mm. box ticking, but is it real? Oh, very much so. Absolutely. And um, for me, it's great because, you know, things like integrity and transparency, um, they're really, really important to me personally. So the fact that our company really works to those um I suppose really resonates with me um, I mean to, to give you an example of how real they are you know they form the basis of all our decision making so clearly we're not a commercial operation we we're here to make a profit we have shareholders but at the end of the day the company operates under the ethos that whatever we do it's not just what we do it's how we do it and they have to live by those values so whether it be a decision that a manufacturing plant has to make about a production line that maybe has a problem or a potential problem our company will always err on the side of caution because it's putting patient first and we will more most likely halt production which could have huge implications down the road for supplying into markets and into countries and potentially sales rather than let something happen now for sure there's probably been times where maybe that hasn't been done quick enough but that would always be the ethos if it's something around our values around integrity and transparency I mean we have all our clinical trial data available on the internet that anyone can go in and look at any of our trials and we were the first company to do that and similarly with the whole transparency around payments to healthcare professionals we have a, a philosophy where um, we won't contract with any healthcare organisation or healthcare uh, professional unless we've consented to disclose that information. And we have a 100% consent rate because if people don't consent, well, then we don't engage with them. Because we just feel that, you know, society demands more of us as a company and therefore we have to be open to be able to stand up to that scrutiny. So um, You sound very proud of that. Well, I am because I think some people go to work and they do a job and they probably think well, what am I doing you know what, what's this all about um, I'm, I've always been really proud I suppose of the, of the kind of the value and the ethics that we have as a, as a company um, because it really does make a difference I mean at the end of the day I'm not the person who's inventing or researching those medicines but the job I do means that someone is going to benefit from our medicines somewhere in Ireland if that ha- if that is to in a really serious condition such as something like HIV or maybe in not such a serious condition if it's only an antibiotic but if that's having that patient feel better much quicker than they would have been like that's that's kind of really great and um, for me it's a really positive thing to be involved with good days work yeah um, I see you were a mentor for the 30% club um, which we're big fans mm. of here in the podcast what has this meant to you and um, do you believe it's important not to pull the ladder up like you, you said earlier on that you got lots of help and mentoring mm. that you didn't even realise at the time mm. but do you think it's important to give something back and to help other younger women coming through yeah. 
yeah, absolutely, really do. Um, and the uh, the thirty percent club, the mentoring program with the IMI, it was something that when I first read about it, I thought, God, I'd love to be mentor- mentored on this myself. <laughs> um, and I, and at first, I was a bit kind of weary, like, what can I share with somebody else? Like, what what will someone learn from me? Because I think women again can undervalue what they can bring their contributions and they may not always see the value that their stories or their past can be for other people so I have a lovely uh, mentee who's in a totally different industry and we've met on a couple of occasions now and at the last meeting I have to say I walked away from that meeting feeling really great because we were able to we had a really good discussion for over an hour and a half on a whole range of topics and we agreed a couple of concrete things that she was going to do as a result. And um, I actually felt that I really was able to give her something and that she actually kind of felt that that was something that could help her. And I thought, well, if, if just one little thing can make a difference, like, so, that's fantastic. So you got something out of it as absolutely, well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I came away from that meeting, really had a really good feel um, it was definitely better than any workout. Uh, it was, but it was just a really good feeling, and that yeah, I've done something really positive, something that wasn't necessarily going to be anything that's going to be personally beneficial to me. But it was like that giving back, which is a terrific feeling. I was just thinking the other day that it's we're really at a transa- transitional phase between the generations. I mean, you were talking to yourself about yourself and your husband, and he gave mm-hmm. up his job uh, for the year uh, when you went to France. Do you think we're at a, at a change, at a pivoting point? I mean, we know that 30% is, is kind of a tipping point. But do you think in society, in the workplace in general, are we, we at that tipping point yet where more women are staying in work and more women are making it up through the ladders? Mm. Maybe not smash the glass ceiling quite yet, but we're getting there. Mm. Do you think we're making progress? So I would say when I look internally... I would be really positive about that because I think when we look at in GSK, we've been very proactive in terms of promoting women. We don't have huge teams in the commercial side, but we've had a number of female GMs who've been fantastic in supporting uh, female talent. Now, if I look a bit wider to our manufacturing sites, that's a bit more challenging because that's where the really the engineers, the more science based um, graduates that we're looking for. And it is much tougher to get those coming through. So when we look at the leadership levels in our manufacturing, it is harder to kind of see um, that coming through. But it is happening at the younger ranks, which is fantastic. But then sometimes I do get a bit disillusioned when I go to, say, uh, corporate events. Well, not just corporate, but professional events where there might be functions where, you know, uh, whether it be uh, open to all businesses. And you look around the room and you see there's a certain dominance of a certain gender, which is male. And then there's a certain dominance, certain age category. And I do feel a little bit disillusioned then because I think, well, nothing is really changing just yet. And I think that... There have been a few people who have really, you know, kind of paved the way, but we still are in a little bit of a minority. And I think it goes back to, you know, women have to be bold. They have to kind of speak up uh, and they have to get they have to get stuck in at the end of the day. Um, I think that uh, certain professions are probably more prone to it. You know, um, and perhaps if I was working in a, a legal or an accountancy or a banking environment, I might have a very different story to tell you. But I think I've been very fortunate that our industry and our company has been quite inclusive uh, and really encouraged women. And do you think it's the way of the future? Absolutely. I mean, you know, I look back over my 23 years in the business, I've had three maternity leaves. 
what two years in total out of the business but out of 23 years it's, it's a blip it's really is a blip I mean you know I was promoted to our leadership team when I was five months pregnant you know again we had a GM who was really proactive he had come from the UK where they were much more used to seeing women you know be promoted while on mat leave you know and just well they'll be back you know so I look back on some of those decisions and I think wow that was really forward thinking future thinking of some individuals and I think I was really lucky but then at the same time you can say that but then you have to be good enough to get those opportunities as well so luck alone will not be enough and you have to take you them when you get them as well absolutely yeah, yeah. yeah well, good on you uh, women often say it's hard to get their voices heard at meetings have you come across that or have you a technique for getting around that I do like to talk, so that's usually not my problem. But I have, I, I think what tends to happen is that we overthink, women overthink what their contribution is going to be. So it's like, oh, this is going to sound stupid. Or, gosh, um, I have to think of something really uh, important to say. And yet, if you think about some of the other contributions can be made, you're thinking, well, that was a bit, like, what, what did that add? So I think, again, you know, we shouldn't overanalyze. I think if we have a point to make, just make it and then just move on. Don't second think it. Don't kind of go through the post-mortem, oh, I shouldn't have said that or whatever. Just move on because nobody else is wasting energy on what they would have mentioned. So I think it's just hearing your voice at meetings and just keep hearing it because the more times you use it, the less it'll become an issue, I think, and then you'll get more comfortable with it. And then if it's internally, I'd ask for feedback from people and say, look, I'm going to try and make more of an effort to speak up at meetings. Can you give me feedback to let me know how did it go? And then seek feedback, but give someone some specific, ask someone, say specifically, I'm going to try and speak up so that they know what to look out for. And then they can give you pointers as to, well, you know, maybe yeah, you're right. Well done. And then you go, great, OK, I'll keep doing that. Or they might give you another bit of advice around it. But I just think just talk and they back you up at the meeting as well absolutely mm. absolutely finally what are your pearls of wisdom that you could hand on to our listeners gosh five pearls five of wisdom. pearls of wisdom so i think um i think one of the big things is knowing what's important to you so it's a bit around your values and i think values can sound very lofty if you're starting off in your career because it can take you a while to understand what is values and i i wouldn't have known what my values were maybe 10 or 15 years ago I certainly wouldn't have labeled them as values but I think it's about just finding out what's really important to you um, because that has to be your moral compass and then once you've agreed well actually this is what's really important to me don't let other people sway you don't let other people do ask you to do things that encroach on those moral compasses because you'll only be sorry afterwards you'll only regret and, and perhaps you're not standing up for yourself or what you believe is right so I think for me that's a really and people respect you for it I think so I think that for me that's a one big thing I think another thing is around um, you know be confident in your abilities um, because if you're not confident in your abilities other people may not be so I think you have to um, believe that you can do things I mean everyone knows the saying that you know men if they think they can do a job 50% of the job they'll go for it women nearly have to be 95% or whatever it is you know so we just need to be a bit bolder and believe in ourselves more and, and what's the worst that can happen we fail it doesn't go as well as we thought we don't get that job but so what nobody has died at the end of the day you know so just believe in yourself and go for it 
you know, we're never the finished article. So don't think that when you get to a certain stage, I have this cracked, I don't need to improve, I don't need to change, I don't need feedback, because we are all learning all of the time. And, you know, for us here, for me personally, um, you know, our whole multi-channel digital way of working is a complete revelation to me. You know, we've all had to go back and do learning and programs around, around what that means and all the new metrics. And that's just huge. It's a whole different language. But we have to keep learning. And if we really want to keep up to date with what's going on in society and in the environment, in our own kind of workspace, we have to keep learning and keep developing ourselves. So, you know, don't think you're ever the finished article because we are never are. We're always learning. Surround yourself with positive people. Really important. Um, life can be tough enough. Uh, it can be really hard to keep your own energy high. So I think that if you surround yourself with people who are like-minded, who are positive, who want to progress, um, that will help you when, when the tough does get going, you know, um, when, the time, when the times get tough, you know, they'll spur you on. And whether that be at home or whether it be at work, you know, it doesn't always have to be at work. You may not find those people at work all the time, um, but you definitely need to have them somewhere in your life. And I think um, they're the people who can really be the boost when you need it most. Um, and then probably finally it's it's to have someone like a mentor or a coach at, at a work environment I, I really do believe who will give you honest feedback I think that's the pro, that's the big thing is honest feedback so it's to help it's to help you once you've decided what it is that you want to do articulate that is to seek out that feedback to understand well where are the potential gaps and what might you have to do to bridge them and then only you will know whether you're willing to go that far to bridge those gaps because maybe you won't be and then maybe you have to have a, a real conversation with yourself to say well actually maybe this isn't the direction of travel for me or maybe you're saying yeah absolutely I can absolutely do that and uh, but I think it's important to have people who can give you some really honest feedback to help you on your journey. It just reminded me of something that somebody said to me once that sometimes, I think it was Danuta Gray, sometimes the ladder doesn't go straight. Oh, absolutely. And sometimes you go left and right yeah. and, you know, all over the place, like a bit of a labyrinth before yeah, you get to where absolutely. And, and that's a great journey. Would you agree? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, I've done jobs. I was a sales manager for a time. I never wanted to do sales. Um, but actually, I learned a huge amount in that and what it's like to be out in sales. I could relate so much more to the people that were with my team. I could relate so much more to what actually went on in the real world, you know, the interaction with customers. And then probably two moves later, I realized how critical that was for me to get another job. And if I had never done that, I would have been at such a disadvantage. So sometimes people think it's all about getting to the next grade or it's all about the next promotion. But actually, it's about the experiences that you get along the way. And what I was, what I would always say to people is that whatever opportunity comes up is to really look at it and say, well, what is the opportunity? What's the experience I'm going to get from doing this job? And, you know, and, and do it to the best of their ability to get the most out of that experience. And then they take that with them, wherever that leads them. And that was Emer Caslin, who is the Acting General Manager of the Pharmaceuticals Business for GSK in Ireland. Emer was this week's guest on the Women in Leadership podcast. 
For sponsorship and advertising opportunities, do contact us at info at womeninleadership.ie and get in touch with us too with your suggestions for guests and topics. We'd love to hear from you. The website is www.womeninleadership.ie. We're always interested in your jaw droppers, you know, those inappropriate things that colleagues may say to you that you think, how do they ever think it was okay to say such a thing? even if it was only in jest or just joking, as they might say. Our email address again is info at womeninleadership.ie. Until the next time, from me, Angie Mazzetti, and all the team on the Women in Leadership podcast, goodbye and take care. Mm-hmm.